why this region matters with all of its rich resources and rare earth elements. You just have the largest oil reserves. Um, you have uh, Venezuela's resources as well with, uh, with oil. The environmental struggle has grown in prominence around the world. While you might still find climate change denialism in some right-wing sectors, ultimately, there is a clear global consensus that climate change is real and we risk making the planet uninhabitable if we do not take urgent action immediately. A planetary catastrophe looms. We are before a crisis of humanity itself. Of course, despite warnings, not enough is being done. And this is a reflection of the many crises facing humanity and the planet. The world is dominated by a transnational bourgeoisie that has little to no interest in solving this or any other problem unless its class interests are served. Worse still, existing inequalities at a global level are being exacerbated by the effects of climate change. While the problem is indeed global, most solutions nonetheless depend on the continued exploitation of the resources in the global south. If this is allowed to continue, the so-called green transition will only perpetuate dependency and inequality between the South and North. If that is the case, then where do environmentalists from places like Venezuela stand? What does the climate justice struggle look like in a country that, like few others, is challenging the power and dominance of the capitalist class? As Brazilian trade unionist and ecologist Chico Mendes once famously said, environmentalism without class struggle is just gardening. Welcome to the Venezuela Analysis Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Luis Granado Ceja. The Venezuela Analysis Podcast brings you independent, on-the-ground, English-language coverage of Venezuela and the Bolivarian process. You'll hear news and in-depth analysis about the country, as well as coverage of leftist and grassroots forces. On today's episode, we're looking at what the struggle for climate justice looks like from a Global South perspective. I'd actually like to make an important addition to the quote from Chico Mendes, one that was made by Professor Jason Hickel, who says that, quote, environmentalism without anti-imperialism is eco-fascism, end quote. If we focus exclusively on a so-called green transition without putting anti-imperialism front and center, then a shift to a green economy will ultimately change nothing about the dynamics of exploitation of the global south by the north. Instead of pushing for regime change in the name of securing access to oil, it will be done in the name of access to lithium. But even here, in the Global South, there is another important debate happening. How can progressive and leftist governments tackle this challenge and break this paradigm? Should we really settle for a situation where our economies are based on the export of primary goods? What do we make of the term extractivism, that is, the extraction of large amounts of primary commodities in service of the global capitalist model? By retaking control of the region's natural resources, pink-tied governments throughout Latin America were able to make great strides in the redistribution of wealth, working to attend to the social debt owed to the population. Today, U.S. imperialism continues to salivate at the notion of having access to cheap resources. But are there latent dangers? After all, by remaining subject to the whims of the global market, progressive projects run out of steam when there are sharp downturns in the price of commodities. Or we can look at the case of Venezuela specifically, which has seen a rollback of so many of the social gains that had been achieved because of the power of U.S. imperialism to limit the sale of commodities like oil in the international market. So what is the solution? Should we consider degrowth as a strategy, as some progressive thinkers advocate? What of anti-extractivism, which has become a common position amongst many on the left throughout the world? Perhaps the solution lies elsewhere, in the communalization of life. To help us answer these questions, we'll speak with Liliana Buitrago, environmental activist and researcher from the Venezuelan Political Ecology Observatory. But first, a conversation with Venezuelan analysis Cira Pascual Marquina on the efforts by environmentalists and communards in Venezuela to tackle the issue of climate change in their communities, about the need to center an anti-capitalist critique, and government efforts with respect to this issue while under a U.S. economic blockade. Welcome back to the program, Sira. It's good to have you, as always. I was hoping we could begin by grounding our discussion with a look at the various ways the issue of climate change is addressed. I've seen that in many left and progressive circles, anti-extractivism 
is framed as if it were the only solution, and that political leaders who don't subscribe to that are easily written off. But looking at the experience of leftists and progressive governments in the region, and Venezuela is no exception, of course, we see how revenues from primary resource extraction played a huge role in the efforts to uplift the working class. In your experience talking with environmentalists and communards in Venezuela, how do they approach this difficult question of extractivism? I mean, the working class in Venezuela and communards in Venezuela basically are, we are Chavistas, right? And Chavez said in COP uh, 2009 in Copenhagen, let's not change the climate, let's change the system. And this is actually really very important for, for all of us. So what is he saying, Chavez, with this, uh, with this expression, with this sentence? Well, he's saying that the problem is actually capitalism and, of course, imperialism and the imperial way of life. And capitalism cannot be reformed. Why? Because capitalism is based on accumulation. Accumulation comes from, it comes necessarily with the exploitation of nature, in addition, of course, to the exploitation of human beings and other forms of oppression and domination. So in the current configuration, uh, the system is uh, also, in terms of the capitalist system, especially in the global north, the system is partially grounded on consumption. Consumption is undeniably linked to fossil fuel consumption and to what we have called fossil capitalism. The, the catastrophe caused by fossil fuel exploitation and fossil fuel-based production has led, particularly in Latin America, to the emergence of anti, a very robust anti-extractivist tendency, which has actually many virtues, this, this tendency. And I think it's so important in Latin America because many of our countries are producers of raw materials in the international division. Uh, well, we are producers of uh, primary material. So that's, I think, that triggers the emergence of this reverse tendency, which, as I say, we have to listen to, we have to debate with them, and we have to learn a lot from them. The expression of this, uh, of this tendency in Venezuela would be the Observatorio de Ecología Política. And you, our listeners, will soon be listening to uh, Liliana Buitrago, and she has they have this, this uh, observatorio has really great work exposing the impact of the environmental problems in Venezuela. Venezuela, of course, as Chavez would often remind us, is still a capitalist country. And it is also a major oil producer. And it is a country of the global south. So the problems, the environmental problems that we face here in Venezuela are real, and that's why the, the work that they do at the Observatorio is important. However, I would differ with their anti-extractivist focus uh, because I believe, uh, I think I'm, <laughs> of course, I'm not alone. Uh, the capitalist system is the cause of the problem, not extractivism per se. Capitalism cannot be reformed, and you must look at an alternative, which we would argue is communism, or the communalization of life. I'd like to expand a little bit more on that last answer. I'm glad you made this reference to Uwe Chavez's famous intervention at COP15. He clearly saw the importance of identifying capitalism and imperialism as a source of today's climate crisis. Nonetheless, we see in some environmental circles an effort to shy away from that sort of critique, that anti-capitalist critique. And we see these other kinds of understandings filtering their way in. So I wanted to ask you, why do you think this is so? Do you think it's deliberate? Is there an effort to try to move away from the kinds of criticisms that we used to hear from certain leaders like Hugo Chavez that linked the climate crisis to the crisis of capitalism? Well, I'm not sure if it's, if it's conscious, although probably the funding sources uh, that fund this tendency are aware of it, but uh, many of these intellectuals are actually very, very committed, and they are actually social activists too, who have a real commitment to the working people in their countries. So, um, and as I said before, I think that we have a lot to learn from them. So, I think basically there is for sure kind of like a tendency shift in, in Latin America, 
in, in intellectual terms, uh, we could say that there is a tendency that leaves behind once again the proposal of the radical rupture with the system and focuses on specific problems that we face in our lives and in our global South countries. So I think it would be important here to think about what would be uh, a real, a, a more powerful alternative to this anti-extractivist uh, position. I would say that the metabolic rift tendency is far more powerful in terms of offering an alternative. I, I am talking about the metabolic rift theory and tendency in relation to the environment and how to find a solution to the very real environmental problems that we face today. So the environmental rift tendency focuses on the separation between, or examines rather, the separation between society and nature caused by capitalism's exploitation of the environment for profit. Uh, and this is actually very important when we think about uh, kind of like making uh, tangible Chavez's proposal in Copenhagen. And I actually would uh, recommend our readers to, to read uh, an article that appeared in, in monthly review, but also in Venezuelan analysis that's called Where Danger Dies, The Communal Alternative in Venezuela it's by Chris Gilbert. And there he explores the ecological aspects of Venezuela's project of communal socialism as a civilizatory alternative with a metabolic perspective. And basically what uh, he argues, and I would agree, is that a radical solution to capitalism, um, to its destructive social metabolism, would be communal socialism which aims to return control of production to producers, basically. That would allow for uh, rational and for psychological organization of productive processes and a human-centered, non-accumulation-centered production, uh, which would be, well, sustainable. So I think that... Uh, I'm not saying that there's only two tendencies in terms of the environmental, uh, the analysis of the environmental crisis and the solutions that are proposed. But roughly, I would say that in our context, in the Venezuelan context, those would be the way that we could uh, pan out or map out the two solutions. That doesn't mean that if you go to a commune, you are going to find everybody thinking about the environmental crisis and how to solve it. The argument is that actually the communal model, the communalization of life leads to, as I was saying, social control of production and therefore sustainability. That's right. It provides the, the material basis to be able to kind of address these issues when it comes to the environment. And I think the ability to get to that point depends a lot on it belonging to something bigger, a broader political process. In the case of Venezuela, we know that as the Bolivarian process or the Bolivarian revolution. And in Venezuela, they have what's called the Pan de la Patria, which is the official document that kind of charts the country's economic development plan for, for five years. And actually in the current iteration of that document, the fifth point reads explicitly, contribute to the preservation of life on the planet and the salvation of the human species. So we can see that it is still a priority. There's definitely a consciousness about the importance of the survival of the planet and the human species. But I wanted to ask you, how has this actually played out on the ground in Venezuela, especially under the U.S. economic black cape? Has there been progress on this fifth point of the Plan de la Patria? Can it be said that the Bolivarian process is an environmentalist program? That's a great question. Before addressing it, I would like to go back and say that you are absolutely right when you say that uh, the issue when we think about communes as an alternative, it's because communes propose a larger and a strategic change for society. It's not like a small, um, small scale attempts to build new social relations. It's kind of like a strategic, the strategic objective, at least for Venezuela's uh, Bolivarian project. But going back to your question, indeed, uh, in 2012, uh, Chavez, we believe that pretty much uh, 
you know, with help with some other people. But Chavez wrote the Plan de la Patria, the Homeland Plan. And it has five objectives. The five objectives uh, roughly go over, well, the political and economic model, socialism, and a new world order that would be, that has to be multipolar. And then the fifth objective, which is the one that you were going off, um, is, well, basically deals with sustainable development, combating, combating climate change, preserving biodiversity, etc., etc. But your question is actually very important. Is this actually happening in Venezuela? And especially in a country under siege, which actually limits kind of like the wiggle room, the capacity to take certain, certain um, steps that are needed in terms of uh, actually making the fifth objective uh, walk, actually be real on the ground. So I would say yes and no. Um, there's definitely, when you do not have the resources to maintain an oil refinery, when you do not have uh, the resources to maintain the pipelines, um, things actually can, can get rather problematic. And I would say that to the degree that, th that we have seen a growing problem in terms of the environment, it has to do a lot with the blockade. The same with the exploitation of, of gold in the southern part of the, of the country, in Bolivar state, which is actually pretty, pretty devastating to the environment. So it's, uh, the truth is that the situation is not great, but I would say that mostly uh, it's because of the of the blockade of course it, undoubtedly um there's always more should be done uh, we should take more steps but i would say that the big uh the big um responsible figure here in terms of the, pro the problems the environmental problems that we face in venezuela is the blockade but at the same time we do have communes i would say that venezuela kind of like offers you uh, two sides, uh, two, uh, two sides that are very, very different. One that is very uh, problematic and that, ha that has led to great devastation, but another one that really is the solution to, to life. And not, I, I would propose that the commune and the communalization of life is not only the solution to the social, political, and environmental problems that we face in Venezuela but also probably around the world. So um, I cannot give a, a closed answer to your, to your question, but I think it's a very good one. It, and it's a question worth debating. And it's worth uh, listening to the criticisms of folks like the folks from the Observatorio, who you're going to be listening to, and other people who are pointing to the real environmental problems that are, that are happening here, while we also look at the extraordinary force that's emerging from the communes, which are small and which have to become much bigger to become a real alternative in social, political, economic, and environmental terms. But they are there, and that's no small thing. Yeah, your answer really serves to help me remember why it is important to center a critique of capitalism and imperialism when we're talking about the environment. We cannot let that discussion fall to the side, because even as we watch what's happening in the world right now with these armed conflicts, we know that war is terrible for the environment, not just the impact on the territory, but the actual energy resources that it demands. As always, Sira, thank you so much for sharing your insight and being able to share with us that grassroots perspective with all your visits and experiences with the communards. It's really quite an invaluable opinion that you're able to share with us here. Thanks again. Thank you, Jose Luis. You've got the lithium triangle, which is needed for technology today. 60% of the world's lithium uh, is in the lithium triangle. Argentina, Bolivia, Chile, uh, copper, gold. Um, we have the Amazon, uh, lungs of the world. We have 31% of the world's fresh water in this region, too. And so I think we have a lot at stake. In our next segment, we will speak with Liliana Buitrago from the Venezuelan Political Ecology Observatory about the need for global responsibility and joint action in both the global north and south, the place of forums like the UN Conference of Parties or COP, and the need to rethink the concept of development completely. 
Hello, thank you so much for sharing your time with us here on the Venezuela Analysis Program. Today we're talking about the North-South relationship and climate change. And I'd actually like to start with this question. In wealthy countries, every day, there's more and more awareness about the climate change crisis. There are marches, forums, public speeches, private media outlets address the issue. Environmental activists talk about the ecological debt and that the consequences of climate change will be more serious for the poorest or least developed countries. However, when the effects of climate change hit a country in the global south, where oil extraction plays a key role in the economy, be it a hurricane in Mexico, a drought in Venezuela, that solidarity seems to fade, and we are blamed for allowing the extraction of non-renewable resources, as if climate change were the exclusive responsibility of these countries. Why do we see this attitude in imperialist countries, even within the environmental movement? And what can be done to change it? How can we help people in the North understand the dynamics that occur in that north-south relationship. Los efectos del cambio climático, eh, digamos que tienen impactos como tú has señalado diferenciados conformes a las desigualdades que pueden eh, que son desigualdades de múltiples eh, The effects of climate change have differentiated impacts as you have pointed out, differentiated according to inequalities, which are inequalities of multiple dimensions, but they are social inequalities, including inequalities in the distribution of nature and the relationship with nature. In this way, for example, the economies of the global south have been submitted to a process of reprimarization to provide commodities to the global north, even at a time when the global north is proposing transitions, their energy transitions, their green transitions. So the assertion that there is inequality between the global north and the global south is indeed very true. However, within the framework of movements against climate change globally, there is a diversity both in the global north and the global south. There are social movements, movements against climate change advocating for climate justice, for example, and these movements have a very strong awareness of the historical inequalities between the north and the south. And the questioning goes beyond blaming or not blaming a country that is extractivist or not, but rather to the necessity of climate action by all countries, whether or not they are oil-producing, whether or not they are producers of commodities for the transition, that is, producers of lithium, producers of different metals, rare earths, and what they wrongly call in the global north, critical minerals. And there is an awareness and a demand for climate action, so beyond assigning blame, there is a demand from climate justice movements towards the governments of the global south to take action. Unfortunately, the right to development has been very poorly used to justify the expansion of fossil fuel extraction, which is at the root of the structural problem of climate change, as stated by the international scientific community, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, etc. And indeed, we have seen at the recently concluded COP, which took place in a petroleum-producing country, that for the first time, there is recognition of the terrible role that extractivism, especially fossil fuel extraction, has played with respect to the problem of climate change. It's not just a situation where the thresholds and limits that had been set are being surpassed, meaning we can't exceed these limits because human life on the planet is at risk. Several of these thresholds have already been crossed. For example, the melting of ice caps, permafrost thawing, and the impact on the Amazon rainforest, among others. A whole series of scientific thresholds that are established, which should not be crossed, have already been surpassed. We are in an emergency situation. So it's not just about assigning historical responsibilities to developed countries in the global north, especially China, as one of the main polluters, the USA, the European Union, it's not just about reminding them of their historical role, but reminding them of the historical role while also taking climate actions in the global south as well. It is a vicious cycle where definitive solutions that would lead to an overcoming of the climate crisis, the global environmental crisis, are not being reached. As a result, often actions by countries in the south are not taken because this recognition of historical responsibilities of those in the north is pending. We have been in this vicious circle for 30 years already. It's been 30 years of COP, 30 years of meetings, not only to address the issue of the climate crisis, but also a series of other environmental issues, such as loss of biodiversity, global pollution problems, and other environmental impacts that are crucial. For example, 
This year, a new summit will be held for the Eskazu Agreement, which is an agreement that should be signed by all countries in order to protect the rights of nature defenders. And on this, social movements from the North, but especially from the Global South, have been emphatic. Because this is a multi-scale problem, it's a problem that arises not just because of a lack of implementation of public policies, but also a problem of climate inaction. What we are confronting at the moment from countries in the global North and South, in other words, is the lack of effective climate action, regardless of the country's conditions. Action must be taken and commitments must be made regarding the situation. So we can say that this problem has many dimensions, where it is essential to consider local, national, and global scales. While it's true that economies in extractivist zones, such as Venezuela and others that have been mentioned, countries where there are strong extractivist activities and their economies rely on oil production. It's important to take action that will lead to the diversification of their economies that will allow for a just and popular transition to draw from the eco-social and intercultural pact of the South, for example, which is a space where we have made a series of proposals for just transitions with an interpolation to the global North. We believe that the important role of countries in the global South at this moment is to take climate action, while acknowledging the historical responsibilities of countries in the global North. We also denounce false solutions because some of the transitions proposed from the global North propose an expansion of energy production and new sacrificial zones in the global South. These zones will not only provide oil for war, oil to continue feeding the model that sustains the civilizational crisis, the model of development or misdevelopment, as Vandana Shiva would say, which currently sustains the modern colonial world. But they also propose that we will be the providers of a whole series of critical minerals that will establish new sacrificial zones with even greater environmental impacts. This dynamic must be stopped. We the countries in the global south cannot continue reprimarizing our economies, and the demand goes beyond not extracting non-renewable resources like fossil fuels. It's about seeking measures and taking climate actions at this moment. One of the initiatives that seems viable to me, and in fact there are studies and commissions backing it in some of the countries that have signed it, is the agreement on the non-proliferation of fossil fuels, which is a global agreement that Colombia, for example, a country from the global south, has recently signed, becoming one of the first countries to do so. It is important to note that there are scientific studies on this because there is also a tendency to infantilize the environmental discourse. These demands to not extracting fossil fuels or leaving fossil fuels underground have been delegitimized, as if we are proposing it be done overnight. This is impossible, and all the social movements that promote it agree on this. So, it's not that solidarity fades away and blame is assigned, but rather that there is a whole series of proposals that are dismissed and ignored, made invisible by the media, because it's simplified, and the issue is polarized. This claim, we are oil producing, we are poor, and we have the right to development, is reactive. And that's where the discourse ends. When what is proposed is that absolutely all countries should have the right to propose and be able to envision a just and popular transition that can also include the people. Furthermore, the effects of climate change do not affect one country more than another. They affect all countries, every single one. Obviously, they have differentiated consequences and impacts in terms of social inequalities, but there is no country in the world that is exempt from the impacts of climate change. That's why we've seen terrible fires in the global north or in countries commonly referred to as developed countries, such as the fires in Australia and the floods in China, Japan, etc. The water crisis that Germany, the United States and others are currently experiencing. There is no geographical distinction. What exists is a differentiated impact that requires, obviously, differentiated adaptation and mitigation strategies as a result of the social inequalities imposed by the capitalist system by the extractivist system on sacrificial zones. You spoke to me about many mechanisms, efforts, and honestly, 
They seem to me to be little known throughout the world. When talking about climate change, this is almost always addressed in a general way. During the COP, journalists will descend on the host country, and for a little while there, it will dominate the headlines. But despite the attention given to the issue in these moments, and despite the many alarm bells being raised, it seems to me that those with global political economic power don't really understand the urgency of the problem. As I was researching for this episode, I saw that in 2009, at COP15, which is to say many years ago, wealthy countries committed to contributing $100 billion to the global south. Yet in the end, an economist named Nicholas Stern says that a green transition will actually cost $2 trillion to accomplish. Even so, that promise, $100 billion, never really materialized. And as you just mentioned, we saw that this last COP was held in the UAE, an oil-rich country. And so many people feel disappointed. So my question is, how can we make these other climate justice efforts, mechanisms, these initiatives being made by communities in the countries of the global south, like the ones you just mentioned, be better seen by the environmental movement? Because it seems to me that perhaps we're making a mistake paying so much attention to spaces like the COP. We can say it's almost all theater at this point. So where is it worth focusing our efforts with people who want to see us take real decisive action regarding climate change? Realmente la, las transiciones justas, eh, que no es un término nuevo, es un término que emerge entre los años 70 y 80. Yes, indeed. Just transitions, which is not a new concept, emerged in the 1970s and 1980s within the U.S. labor movement and numerous other movements that arose and protested against extractive industries and also against nuclear technologies to argue that there cannot be transitions unless the rights of workers are taken into account. It has since been a term that has been extended to propose this concept of ecological justice together with environmental justice, which are both concepts that have emerged from social movements. As we say in this document that I would like to recommend called the Manifesto of the Peoples of the South for a Just and Popular Energy Transition from the Eco-Social and Intercultural Pact of the South. This is a roadmap for the actions to be taken. We propose that the issue of just, popular, and radical transitions is a multi-scaled issue. Let's say that the COP addresses one of those scales, and it has to do with the role that nation-states must play. That's why they are called Conference of Parties. They are summits of countries. This is one of the dimensions that must be addressed. So this is not a dimension that should be abandoned at all, but where obviously the policies, actions, and commitments that countries assume in those spaces have a fundamental role. In those spaces, there is disagreement between the demands of civil society, what they call civil society in those spaces, which for us is what we call popular power, the social movements, grassroots organizations, communities organizing in the territories in defense of water and life, versus the demands of corporations that increasingly have co-opted nation-states. There is a process of corporate capture of states in these spaces. The COP cannot be understood without seeing the role that these large corporations are playing and how they act in the face of nature defenders and the rights of nature. In fact, Latin America is one of the regions where the most land defenders are killed by those who manage the interests of corporations. And in this dynamic, states are also operating. So states have become the enablers of the interests of these corporations. In fact, this consequence becomes clear when we see how the COP is held in an oil-producing country, a summit where the most radical proposal currently coming from social movements, civil society, and the international scientific community is to leave fossil fuels underground and move towards a civilizational transformation because this is a civilizational crisis. The modern colonial capitalist civilizational model and the entire economy that revolves around it today is not functioning and is causing the extinction of species on planet Earth. So what we see there is the visibility of these tensions. So if the COP has become pure theater, it has to do precisely with logic that operates behind the scenes. It's an especially discursive staging that of the so-called green economy, which uses, for example, compensation mechanisms, and this discourse of greenwashing that promotes strategies that in reality recreate new ways of expanding fossil fuel extraction in the world instead of seeking ways to leave them underground, which is what needs to be done. Obviously, it's very difficult to imagine a political, socioeconomic, 
and sociocultural reality that isn't centered on fossil fuels, but unfortunately, it's necessary to do so, even though it's extremely difficult. That's why plans for just, radical, and popular transitions are needed in all countries. There is also a very strong crisis of global democracy that has pulled the political spectrum towards authoritarian forms, benefiting a certain ideological fundamentalism, and this does not contribute to the diversity of voices defending water and territories in the world. This is something in dispute, and as long as states are tasked with managing the public sphere to build societies to survive, to move forward, we will have to continue demanding that the public sphere be democratic. And in that democracy, the commons, those who manage the commons, those who manage the territories, those who manage and care for nature, must increasingly have a greater say in their defense, even when they are criminalized, murdered, killed, and they must also be present in these cop spaces. Our role as a so-called civil society, as organizations, various forms of free association that we have established in different countries, is to continue advocating for a public space managed by nation-states. This is the hegemonic model. We have to continue demanding that these spaces, policies, and the public sphere be democratic. That is part of what is being disputed in the COPs. So social organizations, and I can't speak for all of them, but for those advocating for climate justice, that is those who precisely put this historical perspective on the table and speak out against false solutions and the problems with compensation mechanisms at this moment, carbon markets, and this whole series of mechanisms that have been implemented to make it appear like action is being taken against the climate crisis, are placing their bets on being able to bring these fundamental structural discussions to the table and make them visible. It's an extremely big challenge, but life itself depends on it. Because precisely as a civilization, this model we've given ourselves to organize our world promotes necropolitics, to borrow the term Mbembe uses, but also a logic of death that takes precedence over the survival of territories and life itself. Admittedly, this isn't something pleasant to hear. There are sectors of society that really do not want to hear any more about the climate crisis, what's happening right now, but it's paying attention to your home. If in your home you know that you have a leak, if you know there is garbage piling up where you sleep, you know that you have to clean it up, organize it, fix it, and start building community. So, there's an important educational task to be done as well. Current generations are playing with the rights of future generations. The climate justice movement and the recognition of rights of future generations have made it so that there are many young people who are leading the protests, mainly in the global north. But also in Latin America, young people are starting to organize because they see their future rights being violated and curtailed. Pero también en Latinoamérica están empezando jóvenes a organizarse porque ven vulnerados y cercenados sus derechos. You spoke about the need to break with the capitalist colonial model, to break with the dependency that our economies have on activities in the primary sector and the incomes that are derived from it. What I find very interesting is that, at least we can say that in Venezuela, this possibility, breaking with the capitalist colonial model, is on the horizon. There are popular movements that call for precisely that, something that is frankly not seen in many countries in this world. There is awareness in Venezuela that this crisis is linked to the democratic crisis, to the crisis of representation, to the crisis of capitalism itself. Nevertheless, despite this line of thinking, it is evident the oil sector still plays a predominant role in the economy, alongside other activities, such as mining. In fact, we have seen a certain emphasis on continuing the extractivist model, paying more attention to mining in particular. So my last question is, how can we begin to break that pattern, to imagine that another model of development and well-being is possible? Considering that Venezuela, I would say, is one of the countries where that possibility is more real, more concrete. Para poder hablar de esto es importante hablar del extractivismo, o sea, to discuss this, it's important to talk about extractivism, a term that emerged from the rubber harvesting communities in Brazil, referring to a sustainable way of extracting rubber in their communities. Later, it was used as a term to refer to the extraction of large commodities that have historically been used to sustain the global economic model. 
However, this predatory extractivism has led to new forms of extraction, what is called neo-extractivism, causing self-proclaimed socialist governments to also adopt the logic of reprimarizing their economies, this logic of dependence and rentism. Unfortunately, not only Venezuela, but throughout all progressive Latin American movements and governments, there is no country that has truly managed to break away from this logic, which is a capitalist logic, whether under the name of socialism or under other models. Certainly, there were advances in terms of significant income redistribution that achieved important gains in terms of addressing social debts for many countries. This is very palpable in the case of Latin America. But we haven't been able to advance towards a systemic, civilizational proposal or a conception of the economy that achieves non-extractive diversification or a transition. Because it's not about decreeing that a country will no longer be an oil-producing nation from one day to another. In fact, it would be terrible. We have seen the consequences of the crisis in the Venezuelan oil industry. That is, the current crisis of oil spills. In media reports, the Political Ecology Observatory of Venezuela registers around seven or eight spills monthly, meaning those that are publicized in the media. So, at this moment, the impact of the emergency contraction experienced by the oil industry, in which we currently find ourselves, is precisely due to the lack of attention that has been given to the Venezuelan oil industry as a result of the U.S.-led economic blockade, management issues, and other factors. An urgent contraction, that is, the stopping of production overnight, has significant environmental impacts, possibly even worse ones. This is a debate that, for example, took place in Yasuni, Ecuador, where a consultative referendum was held concerning the non-extraction of fossil fuels in an area of the Yasuni. It was a binding consultation, and the government is obligated not to exploit that oil block located in the heart of the Amazon. So the issue there is to see how to stop extracting oil with the existing facilities that are already in place extracting it. There is a whole discussion about how the closure of the oil wells should be done, how that transition will occur, etc. And it can be useful if we think of it as an example of climate democracy, as an example that shows communities know that oil must be left underground. A majority voted for it. Unfortunately, there is currently non-compliance by the state in Ecuador due to the situation there. But there is a proposal on the table. So how can we break that pattern? Imagine a development model for us. The first thing to do is to rethink development itself, whether it's socialist development, capitalist development, communist development, social democratic development. Development as such has a fundamental problem, and it has to do with the belief that the resources we have are infinite. Global economic planning is done assuming that we will be able to continually exploit resources the way we currently are, and even increase oil production as it currently stands, that we will be able to continue exploiting resources as always. That is not possible. So, this poses us with a fallacy, because it's not possible to keep up with the pace of exploitation and development the way it's being done. That is at the core of any logic, whether socialist, capitalist, etc. As long as development and well-being are framed in those terms, then the proposal is really not possible, not viable. This is critical. And secondly, in order for us to be able to continue to sustain life on the planet, unfortunately, we need degrowth. This is a debate that has also occurred in the global north, but the necessary actions have not been implemented. Development suggests that growth can be infinite, and that is false. Unfortunately, all welfare indicators are centered around measuring indicators that, unfortunately, do not measure the ability to live well or anything beyond this model of development. So, we need to start producing indicators related to other dimensions of well-being. For example, those related to care systems, gender equality, participation of communities in decisions about public matters, etc. There may be other indicators that can be promoted from a socialist, eco-socialist, fairer, more popular, non-capitalist perspective, so that public policies concerning development can also change. 
Another aspect is that the welfare state must be reformulated to include other perspectives on life, such as living well and other worldviews, other forms of valuing life, where the relationship with nature, the pact with nature, that is, the way we do things and how we relate to nature, is at the center. These are indicators that must be biocentric. They must be centered on the relationship with nature. If the prevailing economic model were to turn what they call externalities into internalities, that is, things internal to the economic model, externalities, let's remember, are all these environmental impacts that development projects have and are considered external to the project. If they were internalized and taken into consideration, we really couldn't talk about economic growth when it comes to almost any of the activities that we have undertaken to sustain life. This implies a discursive change, a change in the economic outlook, among many other things. Of course, this has a very important historical burden, because there are unequal forces in the world. Those who concentrate the wealth of this corporatized global economy are fewer and fewer, and increasingly, states are co-opted by corporations. In that sense, it has to be much more valuable to preserve the Essequibo as it is, not exploit it, or to preserve the Amazon as it is, not exploit it, in terms of the importance it has for the species conservation. The economic benefits that this exploitation could provide within the framework of these indicators go against life itself. It's not simple, but in order to talk about a truly eco-socialist model that can guarantee social equality, social equity, gender equity, political and social diversity, etc., we would have to start placing life at the center, as the feminized communities that care for the territories say, and create a bioeconomy, not in the capitalist corporate sense such as the green economy, but from the inclusion of more diverse forms of relating to nature, a world where all worlds are possible, with greater democracy and participation of popular sectors. To achieve this, we must begin to think that the spaces for discussing all matters related to inequalities the spaces for discussing biodiversity, the spaces for discussing gender, the spaces for discussing food, must begin to come together in terms of the relationships between, for example, climate change and food, loss of biodiversity and differentiated impacts on women and vulnerable communities, girls, boys, adolescents, and wise elders of the communities, etc. It is an extremely urgent educational task that we must begin because we are in an emergency. Es un trabajo educativo súper fuerte eh, el que hay que empezar a hacer ayer porque estamos en emergencia. That's our program for today. For more on the issues explored, check out episode 17, Life is Better in the Commune, episode 6, Building Feminism Every Day in Venezuela, and episode 2, Popular Power Under Duress. One final note. I have to confess that I'm rather cynical about our ability to tackle the climate change crisis from a working class perspective, for all the reasons we explored on this program. But success also depends on voices in the global north assuming an anti-imperialist outlook. And thus far, I don't think we're there, and time is running out. On October 25th, in a sign of what climate change has in store for us, Hurricane Otis made landfall in Acapulco, Mexico, as a Category 5 hurricane having increased from a Category 1 in just 12 hours, a climate phenomenon never seen before. I will never forget how senior climate justice reporter for The Guardian, Nina Lakani, instead of showing concern for the working-class victims of that catastrophe, spent her energy criticizing Mexican President Andrés Manuel López Obrador, writing on social media about his, quote, love affair with fossil fuels that turbocharged the storm, end quote as if it were Mexican fossil fuels alone that were responsible for creating the conditions that led to this extraordinary weather event. As if she weren't writing from the comfort of her home in a rich country, living off the spoils of centuries of exploitation of the global south. All because López Obrador, like Hugo Chávez in Venezuela, decided that the state should exercise its sovereignty over the country's natural resources for the benefit of the people. This is what Chico Mendes meant when he said, environmentalism without class struggle is just gardening. If we leave the struggle for climate justice in the hands of people like Lacani, we might save the planet, but we'll destroy the lives of working class people in the global south at the same time. 
Be sure to visit us at venezuelanalysis.com for regular news and analysis on all things Venezuela. We're also everywhere on social media. If you enjoyed the program, please share it with your friends. We'll end today's episode with the song La Tierra Está Sufriendo by Efraín Clavo. No es un decir que la tierra está sufriendo, hoy la estamos destruyendo de la manera más vil. Válgame Dios si acabamos el planeta, que alguien me dé la respuesta, ¿dónde vamos a vivir? No es un decir que la tierra está sufriendo, hoy la estamos destruyendo de la manera más vil. Válgame Dios si acabamos el planeta, que alguien me dé la respuesta, ¿dónde vamos a vivir? La sabia naturaleza se está negando a morir, los pájaros cantan tristes como presagiando el fin, si destruimos su hábitat no tienen a dónde ir. El avance de la industria Aumenta nuestro sufrir Cuántos ríos contaminados han dejado de existir Pronto no tendremos agua para llenar ni un barril La madre tierra contenta se sentiría muy feliz Si los países que pregonan ser potencias Usaran la inteligencia Tendríamos buen porvenir Bueno sería si tomáramos conciencia La madre tierra contenta se sentiría muy feliz Si los países que pregonan ser potencias Usaran la inteligencia Tendríamos buen porvenir ¿Para qué construir bombas que beneficia un misil que buscamos en la luna en el remoto confín? Si Jehová nos dio un planeta con todo para vivir, es mi humilde posición. ¿Y quién me va a discutir? Eduquemos nuestros niños para cuidar el jardín, si no irremediablemente nos tendremos